being closed off to the world, that might feel good to you, but I guarantee you that there is some person out there that needs you and they need you to be a little bit vulnerable to help them through this. Welcome back to Threads Unseen, unraveling a story of trauma. In our last episode, we explored the tremendous load the Swearingen family, Brad, Amanda, and daughters Ali and Kenna, took on when the youngest child, Gavin, experienced a traumatic brain injury and a fall from a swing. All the threads frayed. It became clear they would all need help and different kinds of help to hold the experience as it was unfolding. I'm your host, Sherry Fella, CEO and founder of Bloombase, Brad Swearingen's executive coach, and your narrator on this journey of unraveling trauma. This is episode three, The Check Engine Light is On. A reminder here to those listening, the ground we cover in these discussions may be triggering to some listeners. When I think we were maybe two days in, we had a one of the ICU doctors came in and she looked at Brad and I, and her name was Dr. Nitu, and she looked at Brad and I and she said, okay, well, you two have PTSD about this. I want you to know. And we both laughed, which oh, wow. is just such a bizarre response. I understand. But she looked at us and she goes, no, I'm serious. And we were like, oh, okay. We kind of brushed off her words. But looking back, I was like, oh, well, yes, of course we have PTSD from all of this trauma. I saw her years later in a hospital. I, I went up to her and I said, you may not remember me or us or anything, you know, because you see countless patients. Right. And being in the ICU, you see countless really terrible stories, right? I said, but my son fell off a swing. And she's like, Gavin. Like, she remembered. Oh, wow. And I said, I started to cry because that's what I do. And I said, you help save us. Because not only did she save Gavin, you know, she she was doing so much care for Gavin, but she was the first person to look at Brad and I and like give us this acknowledgement that like we were also yes. going through trauma. Everybody was focusing on Gavin as they should, but she was the first person to look at us and say, you've got work to do, mm-hmm. right? This is a big moment for you too. Unless you're the child of a psychologist, you were not given the tools on how to cope with some of the right the the big things. And so uh, when something happens, trying to both learn the tools and deal with whatever happening is not is not the best situation to uh, find yourself wow, in. Well it kind of feels like like trying to learn how to be a mechanic while working on your car at the same time, right? <laughs> yeah. Like you're like, I need these skills with beforehand. the check engine light on. The check engine light is on. And as Gavin began to improve, the trauma reached deeper and deeper into the family. They began to explore a whole new life, new worries, near-constant appointments with doctors and for therapy. Brad and Amanda attempted to soldier on for months. I have always run the ship. I am the captain. And that is, and not that Brad and I are in a partnership, but like I run our house ship in the sense of getting people where they need to go and taking care of things. It's just what we do. But even now, like looking back at photos of myself, it's it's hard because it's like I was really, really unwell. I really broke down 
where it really was my turning point was in February of 2015. And I just found myself working, trying to do everything. Run the house. Brad had gone back to work. Friends had oh, gone yeah. back. We yeah. were doing day to day. He yeah. was doing, Gavin was doing five to seven therapies a week because anywhere I could get him in, anyone who we thought would help him, we sought them out. And in February of that year, like February of 2015, I found myself on the floor of my bedroom at, you know, 11 p.m. after doing everything during the day, fixing dinner, doing laundry, doing the things I needed to do. I just collapsed. And for whatever reason, I was, I started Googling therapist because at this point I'd never reached out. I literally Googled from the floor in my bedroom, therapist in my area. And I came up to psychology today and it's like, you know, I'm trying to find a, a trauma therapist. And, and I remember Brad coming in and he's like, what are you doing? And I was like, I think I'm at the point where I can't keep going on my own. And I put in trauma therapist and I don't know why I picked the therapist that I did, but she was the first name that I saw and I sent her an email and I actually went back through my email records to read what I wrote her. And it was fairly well worded. I'm really impressed <laughs> well, like that I had that much forethought. I was, I seemed very formal, but I said, I went through a trauma. I need help. I'm ready to start working on moving forward. And I wrote down her response to, to me was, I'm glad you're ready. I have an appointment next week. I remember her voice had a combination of calm and high anxiety. It was just this kind of interesting combination of both. And she wanted to get in pretty, pretty desperately. And then I think she went on to just kind of matter of fact, tell me what had happened to her son, I believe on the phone. And the fact that you could matter of fact say that was kind of how she got through life was you just keep going. You just keep going, even though there's high anxiety and a lot of fear going on. That's the voice of Gloria Hood, Amanda's therapist, and the person she happened to find on Google that night from her bedroom floor. I could tell from the beginning, I, I could sense Amanda's strength, that she had a strength and a resiliency, and she is a kind and genuine person. And bright, had some insight, always looking to gain more insight. Every session Amanda attended, she was looking for a takeaway. And she was looking for something that she could do differently. Amanda did not come in and just vent. She was looking to do some work and learn things and problem solve. Fear and anxiety were primary okay. for the safety of her son and for the recovery of her son. Because mm. every doctor's visit would bring different news and potential surgeries. So there was a constant, what we would call hypervigilance, where you are activated almost all the time, getting ready to protect someone. And again, it's what the nervous system does, but that can be very exhausting. After you've done that for a while, you may melt down and be very emotional. There's the sadness of the grief, realizing that your child 
will not be neurotypical. And then that can take you back to the fear of, but how will he progress? And so one of the ways that we begin to repair is to look at the thoughts and emotions through a cognitive behavioral therapy lens and look at what thoughts are rational and what thoughts are not rational, Uh, what thoughts are helpful, what thoughts are not helpful. Okay. And reframing some of the things that may not be completely accurate, but is the way we've processed trauma and then finding new ways that we can think about things that are more helpful. Yeah. And it doesn't just involve putting a positive spin on things, but certainly that gratefulness can be part of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Amanda's, she was a pro at using gratitude through this entire time. Another thing we do is look at trying to identify those triggers so that we can maybe make a plan for how someone will feel more safe, what can help them feel safe as they're going through life. And there were a number of things that Amanda did in that way. The other thing we will do is the whole concept of mindfulness, which is really a term that many people know these days. But that means not denying that there's an emotion going on, recognizing the emotion so that it can kind of inform us. Yes, I am feeling anxious. But again, looking for a threat and then letting that anxiety pass. And there's lots of different activities that people can do to try and work on on letting anxiety or letting the depressed mood pass. A lot of people talk about vulnerability these days, but it's really a thing to be able to say, oh, wow, am I feeling this way about myself? Or am I feeling this way about my wife or my kids? Or to really just be real with and not be afraid that that's going to take away from who you are as a person. If there's anything that I've learned is that, you know, I'm not going to be able to do this on my own. I have to give myself permission to do what I need to do. And that's okay. Initially, I I remember telling Gloria this, that I felt like my weaknesses would put my family at risk. And if I wasn't strong enough, I see. Gavin wouldn't do okay. Or if I wasn't strong enough, if I fell, my girls would not be okay. My husband would not be okay. She'll say something in a session. She'll say, okay, if what you're needing is permission, I give you permission to do this. And it's so funny because like, I don't need her permission, but it has been so helpful to hear someone say out loud to kind of, you know, I have doubts or I've, I've, oh, I'm not enough, sir, which, you know, probably stems from a lot of different things. But she's like, I'm giving you permission to feel this way. Yeah. And I never in my life thought that I needed permission to feel. But it really is. Like, there's so much, when there's so much emotion, it can easily just kind of get tangled up. Yes. With all those demands on you? Yes. My family will be at risk if I am not strong enough. I can't imagine the magnitude of mindfulness that was required for Amanda to shift that track and to give herself permission to feel for herself however she felt. As Amanda began her work in therapy, Brad was still struggling with his role of patriarch and how he should be behaving. 
in my own generation and the generations before, yes, there was this expectation that you don't really show your emotions. <laughs> and then they would come out in anger or whatever else because they were so bottled up. There's just this viewpoint of if I show emotion, is that going to be weakness? And I think it's just trying to figure out the right time to let it out because 100% of never letting it out, I think that's where I went wrong. Brad had a supporting environment at work with his colleagues, Ann, Janice, and Denny. They were also struggling with how to help him. This was new territory for everybody. In addition to dealing with all of Gavin's complicated health issues and worries, Brad was racked with guilt and still bottled up. Gavin had an accident, and Brad felt responsible. Magnified by the belief he had about his role of patriarch and how it should play out, and because of his unwillingness to be vulnerable and to share what he was really shouldering, his trauma was finding its own way out. He said, it's my fault. Yeah. He, say, he <laughs> says, said that more than once. It's my fault. From the beginning. Yeah. From the very beginning, it's my fault. I'm sure all three of us, at least, said to him frequently, it is not your fault. I'm sure his wife was saying it. I'm sure his parents and his in-laws were all saying it. And I think to this day, he's managed it better, but I would say it's not gone. Yeah, so that fault piece. Trauma, I mean, that, to that extent, that aspect of trauma, I don't know if it ever entirely goes away, which is another tragedy around trauma. Right. Because so many things are not your fault. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Stuff happens. When I first met Brad a couple years ago, he did not open up to me for a really long time about what had happened with Gavin and what a pivotal point that was in his life. But I felt like he had not yet decided he had punished himself enough to voice that or show any concern for himself and how it impacted him. Because it was all his fault anyway. That's the way he was supposed to be feeling. Does that resonate for you all? Did you see that show up? Yes. He projected a lot onto his son. This is my son. My son will follow in my footsteps kind of a thing. He grappled really hard with what I will describe as guilt for what he now perceived Gavin wouldn't be. And I can remember telling him repeatedly, you have no idea what Gavin ever would have been. And so you can't make the assumption that Gavin isn't going to be something much greater than you ever anticipated he would be. But it was so difficult for him. And I do know that the trauma affected him so Deeply. I mean, Janice may remember there were times we'd find him on the floor in his office, just sitting and having trouble continuing with his day. And it was just, that was really hard for all of us. I think a lot of leaders, particularly in the workplace, grapple with the gray. How do I, how do I help him as a leader? Where are my lines there? when I really find him on the floor and I just want to give him a big hug and make this human being feel better. What were the struggles you as leaders had? You already provided part of the answer. You just give him a hug, which isn't very leader-like, perhaps, but 
it lets him know that's okay. I mean, it's okay to just have a hug today. And I, I think Brad gives out hugs where he didn't used to. And Denny is a leader. Denny hugs a little bit more than he ever used to. I was supported by just some wonderful people at work. My boss, Denny, <laughs> which I love blowing his reputation out. He had built this reputation of this, you're going to work hard under Denny. And I don't know, just tough reputation. Tough is what he, he had built. And he was somewhat proud of that. But I will blow his cover that he is the most loving boss that I, I've ever had, uh, hands down which I don't know how he feels about me stealing away his reputation. And then coworkers like Janice and others and just so many people around you that showed like it's okay to love another coworker. And that, that has a place. Here, we're hearing from a group of high-performing leaders grappling with how to help a fellow high-performing leader. And I wonder... How often do leaders like these we're hearing from question how much they are allowed to bring their humanness to work or to their coworker who they clearly care about? It's such a commonplace question in work environments. When you're lost like Brad is, and the people around you don't know how to help either, healing can sometimes take a more winding path. And for Brad, it would take a more winding path to seek out professional help than it did for Amanda but he would come to understand how important that help was for him. Yeah, I don't know that I had like a day where I had like this sudden epiphany that I need help. There's a lot of folks encouraging, even folks at work, hey, have you gotten help yet? Have you, have you opened yourself up? And for me, like opening myself up was the last thing I wanted to do. Part of what caused the delay is getting help was, one, you know, I'm trying to shoulder this. I don't want to get help. I don't want to open up to vulnerability. So this opportunity to kind of, once you first session, you go and you realize it's not what the stereotype, there's, there is a couch, you don't lay on it. You, right. you have a conversation. Sometimes it's similar to this one, mm -hmm. if I'm honest. And you talk about whatever you want to talk about and you open up when you're ready. So I think just, you know, trying it with the first one after a lot of encouragement, that began to open the door. Now, I will say I went in, I'm like, well, <laughs> I think I told the first counselor I went to, like, I think I just need two or three sessions and I'm good. <laughs> uh, you know, so eight years later, and I, I go off and on. I don't always, it doesn't need to be once a week or once a month or even once a quarter. But yeah, it's uh, pretty amazing how that flips. So just how even in general that I feel like as a role in everyone's lives, let alone folks that have been through something traumatic. So. I think it's interesting because, you know, what I hope people hear many, many things, but in terms of getting help, for some, like Amanda, it's this big aha. For others, it's a process of, right? Even just the idea of getting help is a process and then getting it is another process and then letting it work is another process. It's so multi-layered. Yes, yeah, how you describe it is is very much multiple layers. Because you you're even building trust with with your counselor. I didn't open up to them for a long time. For me to tell the whole story of what I was feeling and letting that out and feeling out all those things that I felt. Because yeah, depression is kind of a. I wasn't formally diagnosed, but I certainly could feel 
like you just feel numb to the world and uh you start looking for things that are going to make you feel alive and it's a dangerous road so getting that safe space getting some of that stuff that's buried because the way emotions work now the way i understand like this journey through emotional intelligence and trauma it's all somewhat related but just this own journey of learning that shame is anger pointed inward <laughs> feeling ashamed of what's happened and that you're angry at yourself that first hump was the hardest especially if you have those old school like going through a counselor is weak you're showing weakness crying is weak this idea that i'm going to go in there you can see even like i i said the bravadoism of the, i just need two or three of these <laughs> and we're going to call it good it is a bit of a process when like these big things happen and not having the tools to process them effectively is a very important skill i feel like it helped unlock things about me that were better and shut off some things that weren't so great and so for men especially men i would say yeah let's let's normalize talking to somebody well that's a coach or therapist or whatever it is especially if you need need help the lessons of the trauma space continue to seep into all the spaces Brad finds himself in compartmentalizing is not always possible or healthy and this is where my story as narrator collides with the participant in this journey in february 2020 when Brad and I began to partner in the coaching space, I saw in front of me an incredibly brilliant leader, sharp, intelligent, competent, and I saw a leader in pain. I wasn't sure what that pain was. That was Brad's work. And I trusted as a part of our process and the power of the coaching space that he'd find his own answers. No coaching journey is the same, not for our clients and not for me as a guide. However, every coaching journey, if you're focused on getting to the truth of you, is focused in the same direction, inside, into the caves of strength and courage, and into the caves of doubt and fear. All of it represents possibility for growth, and all of that growth can be maximized with safe space and trust. Brad's coaching journey was no different than my own. It was a long, slow walk into the darkest corner of his interior landscape. That is where I was first made aware of Gavin's accident, in coaching, we aren't exploring this landscape to diagnose or treat. That is the work of a trained psychologist or counselor who is often a powerful partner in tandem with a coach. In coaching, we explore the interior landscape to shine light in, to be curious, to see what our clients make of it, how they want to hold it, how what they see might be reshaped, how it is serving them or how it might be getting in the way. And it was in this exploration that Brad began to understand the power of his full integration as a leader and as a dad, husband, friend, or any other role he might choose. He began to supercharge his own power of self-awareness and vulnerability, the power of leading with vulnerable connection versus patriarchal direction, the power of living open instead of closed, the power of seeing the trauma, naming the trauma, sharing the trauma, and ultimately beginning to unshoulder it. Unlearning is the hardest learning in the coaching space and in life. And Brad's courage to tackle that kind of learning inspired me then and still now. 
So you're bopping along in this recovery process with your family and careers still progressing. You're finding your way. And then someone says, I want you to talk to Sherry Fella and think about coaching. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What? Because I feel like I got to see some of this trajectory you're describing in a different way, of course. What made you want to try even that? That's another vulnerable space, right? Yeah, I think with coaching like that, so at that point, I was a little bit more comfortable with being vulnerable. Any angle for coaching is going to be positive because you're going to learn something about yourself. And the role of that coach is that I think the coach implicitly knows at the beginning, you don't have to reveal your secrets here, that the individual knows what the answer is, but they don't know how to get it out. And so that role of a coach is unlocking something in you. This is why safety and trust are absolutely essential in the coaching space. For Brad to let down the guard that has served him for the better part of his life, he has to feel safe. Safe enough to hear me holding up his blind spot with curiosity and care. Safe enough for him to share the most important pieces of his story without judgment. Especially the pieces he doesn't even want to touch alone, much less with someone else. Safe enough for him to have the space to wander around himself and see where he goes without advice or direction from me. Trust that this space is his and his alone, and I trust him to find his own answers. I'm there to support him, not direct him. It is so inspiring to hear Brad and Amanda both share the many resources they turn to for help for themselves as individuals, both formally and informally. And as they got help, it also became clear that their relationship was under tremendous strain. They were each responding to their trauma in different ways and in ways that weren't necessarily helpful to the other spouse. When did you know, wow, as a couple, we're maybe not, I don't know if equipped is the right word. You're clearly never ready for something like that. But when did you realize, man, we might need some support here? I think we recognized that we both felt really frustrated kind of early on. I don't know exactly when it would be, but what we now know is that Brad and I process trauma and grief and even just information completely differently, which a marriage therapist helped us with that. Probably not. That was in like 2016. It was probably two years later that someone finally gave an explanation of that. Yeah, I think— yeah, we didn't until we really got into because it's not even just processing it differently. You can act like as a couple, and this is over time, this is not in that early right. acute period, but you can actually process it in a way that hurts the other one. In my case, I want to take the information in, I want to think about it, I don't want to talk about it at all. And Amanda wants to talk about it, right? Yeah, so our example is like a doctor comes in. Yeah. A doctor comes in and tells us a bunch of information. Yeah. And Brad needs to listen, think about it, and he actually needs to, like, go take a walk on his own. (laughs) The nerve. I know. (laughs) I know. And so for me, the doctor comes in, gives us all this information, and I want the doctor to close the door, and then I want to, like, sit down and look at each other and talk about it for the next two hours and lay out scenarios and make a plan and whatever, right? And I want to stay together till we have a plan. But what I just said is what we both needed was exactly the opposite of what the other one needed. 
So it wasn't just that we processed it differently. It was detrimental yeah. to each other. How did that feel to each of you until you realized this, right? So you're in this a year and a half or two years on yeah. this before— It was terrible. Doing- Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You really got to get help with mental health. Of course, I, I was reticent to do that in a stereotypical fashion. But, I mean, it could happen day to day. I mean, like friends and family would want to come over and, and talk about it. And that, that's what Amanda needed. But I would immediately start spiraling, panic attacks, need to get out, can't find the air. Like, I don't want to be part of this party anymore. So but To me, that felt like abandonment. Yeah. Right? So we went through this over and over again. When he left, it felt like he was leaving me. But when I was talking to him, it felt like I was suffocating him. And so it really did. And it's funny that we never kind of worked that out. It's ironic that we didn't really work that out until all these years later. And when that therapist started kind of walking us through that, we were like, oh, that makes so much more sense. How in the world did you all make it to 2016? (laughs) I mean, really? That's a lot to be opposite through something like that. I I mean, how did you make it? Because we did whatever it took. And we really had put our marriage, like, on the back burner. We were partners, but, you know, we really kind of took each other for granted that he was working and doing what he did, and I was doing what I did. And we kind of both just were going forward in parallel. We had so many people. We even had a marriage counselor tell us, like, you know the divorce rate for people like you is like 98%. Are you sure you guys want to? And we're like, yes, that's why we're here. But it is. If you, you know, the divorce rate is high for family who goes through trauma. Grieving a child is very hard. So, you know, that's very hard on your marriage. So we really have just kind of complimented each other. And we've just grown up and we've both changed. And I think recognizing that has been critical. There's a love of each other and a love for the family that if you can go back at those core levels and just recognize it's not your intention to hurt the other person. It's not their intention to hurt you. You just need to process it differently. Uh, to Amanda's point, it's a skill you should get at the start of your marriage, yes. not in a time of crisis. <laughs> we had to come apart and come back together for sure. We have learned a lot about each other. And what I think for me is the two big takeaways is we have to keep choosing each other every day. Every single day, we have to choose to be married because it's not always easy. And we got married right after I turned 21. And I just had this picture in my head of that I was going to wake up and every day I was going to pick this partner and this was my person. And I was just going to be so happy and so in love. And the reality is, is some days, like, we don't like each other. Yeah. And that's okay. Yeah. Right? But we always, at the end of it, come back and say, I don't like you very much right now. And he's like, well, great. I don't like you either. Right? <laughs> Thanks it's for not, sharing. It's not one-sided. <laughs> and then we'll say, okay, what's next? What do we need to do? That last step is what I had to learn how to do. Because I don't feel like that was my expectation or that isn't really how we operated before this trauma. They did whatever it took for Gavin, for themselves, then ultimately for each other. And as Brad and Amanda were searching for more stable footing as individuals and as a couple, as they were determining what's next, 
their daughters, Allie and Kenna, were growing, and that meant processing what happened to their brother and to their family in new ways. This amazing pair of sisters needed support for their trauma, too. I only started going a year ago. So I waited till seven years past the accident to start asking for help, which was very detrimental, I think. But I really should have asked for help. And that that is my advice, is to ask for help. I'm a very stubborn person, and I do not like asking for help. I never have, and I still struggle with that. Of like, I will fail a hundred times over myself to asking someone to help me. And I think that is what I would do differently. That was very detrimental to the PTSD and depression that comes with all of this, was I needed to talk through it. And I definitely could not be sitting here if I hadn't had gone over this story at least a hundred times with my therapist at this point. One of the many reasons I'm so grateful you're a part of this and why your parents, I think, were so engaged in wanting to tell this story was because, as they've said, Gavin's story has been told. But I don't think people understand the impact of trauma, the ripples of it, right? For you. I like that word. The ripples. The ripples. And that keep coming. Those ripples aren't going to go away for you guys, right? You reprocess trauma every time you hit a new stage of growth, of development. Mm. So I processed it when I was seven. I processed it when I was nine. I definitely processed it when I hit 13. When you hit that big puberty mark of growth, that was the worst one. And that's when it all started to be detrimental to me. And then I reprocessed it at 15. And I'm going to keep doing that until I hit. Actually, never. Like, it'll, it keeps going. Well, and as you said, you go through those different growth stages. The view is different, right? Because you're different. So the perspective back probably looks different, and to have to touch it all again, I can't imagine how difficult that must be. That is one of the harder parts of trauma, I think, is that it doesn't, like, it's not a one and done. It's not an event, is it? It's not an event. It's mm-hmm. a it's it's a lifestyle. You keep living it. I wish I would have sat down with my parents and talked about the feelings that we had, because there's definitely, there's still things we've never talked about. And I think that would be my advice to others is to sit down as a family and talk about it, not like one time, but several times as to continuously talk about it. It's not a taboo subject like it felt. It's not going to break you to talk about it. It, It's helpful. Same for you, Kenna. Do you think that to you? I had a moment where I I hadn't talked to anyone about it. And the moment I got my memories back, I was outside and memories came back and that just kind of released all of these emotions, and I had a mental breakdown on the on the sidewalk, and everyone was coming, and I came home that day, and Mom was like, Hannah, what's wrong? And I told her what happened, because that was the first time I actually talked to someone about it. It really made a big difference after I told someone what these feelings I had inside, because they were very, very different than what Allie had told Mom or what Mom felt like I felt during that. I want to put out there that you're never going to find like, it, it's really, really hard to find someone to actually talk to because you, Allie, and I have friends, but even some of our friends don't even know what happened. Everyone at the school knew what happened that night, but you couldn't talk to them about it because they would just say, oh, you're fine, and you could try and talk to mom and dad about it. Like, oh, it's okay. Well, you're, we're still here for you, and you, we can talk to your grandparents, and there's, you could hire a therapist. There's no one to talk to. 
I got that a lot of, I totally understand how you're feeling. And I still get that. And I think that might be my biggest, almost like trigger point or or pet peeve almost. I cannot stand it when people say, well, I understand how you're feeling because my third cousin's sister-in-law also hit her head and now has a brain disorder. No one's story will ever be the same. So no one's, no one will ever understand. Just like our stories are no one else's either. How do you respond to people who are saying, I'm sorry for your loss, but then congratulations, or I'm so glad he survived. And and it was people you'd never met either. Everyone, like teachers, you had no idea who they were, and they'd come up and be like, you're so brave. I'm so proud of you. I don't know who you are. I think it's okay. Or just offering a shoulder to cry on or saying, do you need to talk? Questions instead of statements, I think. Of, do you need anything? Do you want me to say anything? Do you want to talk about it? Instead of assuming that you want to lay your emotions out for everyone. It feels like there was a lot of knowledge and still is around what happened to Gavin. And there's little knowledge that what happened to you guys. Or is that not true? That is that is very the true. That's the most true statement anyone has ever said. So here we have the Swearingen's, a family of five, one of whom has undergone physical trauma, four others going through emotional trauma as a result, each beginning to reach out and seek help in their own ways. They had already been through so much, but each was now progressing on their own inner journeys. And just as you heard the family describe Gavin after the accident, they now were family members after the accident. Trauma had shifted all of them. The threads that had frayed in each of them and between them were now demanding attention in a myriad of ways. We'll talk about that in our next episode. This has been episode three of Threads Unseen, unraveling a story of trauma. This podcast is produced by Bloombase. At Bloombase, our coaches create a container of safety where you can grow. A coach is a guide in your own exploration. We're not there to give you advice or answers, but to come alongside you in finding your own answers. As a coach, I am a guide. Our connection that creates space for your unfolding is sacred to me. It's an honor to be trusted to serve as a guide through your introspection. Excavating the deep caverns within ourselves can be both exhilarating and challenging, and honestly scary. It will uncover growth and possibility, This kind of journey, this exploration, has the power to unlock and unleash opportunities you might not have thought possible for you. It's not for everyone, but for everyone it is for, it creates deep roots of courage and clarity. Because while I'm your guide, I'm in the boat with you. You're doing the work. You pick the direction and your aura of choice. This journey is yours. Our coaching partnerships result in high-performing, emotionally intelligent leaders, whose growth and impact continues to ripple long after they have left our engagement. Learn more at thisisbloombase.com.